بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين So inshallah ta'ala today بعون الله عز وجل بتوفيقه we're going to try our best to finish الأرجوزة المئيئة and we still have quite a lot to cover but inshallah ta'ala we'll uh, summarize certain parts without going into as much detail and again I think that anything that we do summarize and kind of gloss over you can easily find in the well-known books of seerah such as the sealed nectar or if you find the sealed nectar a little difficult to read you could read the summary of it which is called when the moon split um, so the idea is inshallah ta'ala to cover as much as we can uh, we will finish the poem bi'idhnillahi ta'ala and uh, to sort of you know if necessary maybe just indicate that certain things need to be read uh, you know in your own time inshallah so we reached the 65th stanza thumma bani quraydatin wa fihima khalfun wa fi dhatir riqa'i ulima so he then the poet rahimahullah ta'ala he goes on to talk about Bani Quraida. Now what you have to remember is with regard to the three tribes of the Jews, Bani Qaynuqa and Banu Nadir and Bani Quraida, each one of them betrayed the Prophet after a major battle. So after the battle of Badr, he was betrayed by Banu Qaynuqa. And after the battle of Uhud by Banu Nadir, and after the battle of Al-Ahzab by Banu Quraida. And the greatest of all of the betrayals was Banu Quraida without doubt. Because really what made the battle of Ahzab much worse was that the Muslims were attacked from behind by Bani Quraida. In the sense that Bani Quraida attempted to uh, or made some movements towards the women and children of the Sahaba who were protected in a particular area in the battle of Al-Ahzab because Al-Ahzab was such a terrible danger. The Prophet ﷺ had put the women and children in a particular place. He had protected them in a particular place. And the Muslims had gone out to fight the battle of Al-Ahzab. And you have to remember that there was very little fighting in Al-Ahzab. Now we can't say there was no fighting because there were skirmishes. There were times and famously Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh uh, was wounded quite badly to the point where he uh, was close to death. But he had made dua for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow him to live long enough for, the, for, for this issue of Bani Quraida to be dealt with. But what you have to remember here and what is very important is that while these skirmishes are going on, there was no major fighting. But the, you know, there were some arrows, there were some, you know, whenever they would come near to the trench, the Muslims would fire arrows at them. There were some skirmishes, there was, there was some, you know, sort of isolated incidents of fighting at this point when you're facing a huge confederate army to find that the very people that you have a, pr a pledge and a promise with behind you have gone to attack your women and children is a huge betrayal and this is what it is said that Allah revealed about it 
Here it was that the believers were tested and they were shaken with a great shaking that this was revealed regarding Bani Quraidah because they can handle the army in front of them. But what do you do when the people behind you turn on you? And so Bani Quraidah uh, the betrayal uh, that they did of the Muslims and their siding with Quraysh in the battle of Al-Ahzab from behind the Muslims was a huge test and a huge uh, trial. Initially, the Prophet ﷺ returned from Al-Ahzab and he entered his home and he put down his weapons. Now remember what happened with Al-Ahzab was there are two main reasons why the Confederate army failed. Number one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent against them conditions which made it impossible for them to stay in place. And that included storms, cold, you know, the, the animals of the desert. They were not, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made them extremely uncomfortable. And bear in mind that every time they get near to the trench, the Muslims fire arrows at them and, you know, it's, for them it was very uncomfortable. But also you should not neglect that another reason why the Confederate army failed was because they never had any agreement in the first place. They are not a natural, they are not natural allies. These people who are coming together, you think that they came as one army but their hearts are differing. And this ayah was not revealed regarding them, but it applies to them as it applies to the Yahud as well. That you believe that they are one, but in reality their hearts were differing. You have major tribes that generally fight each other, who have come together to fight the Muslims. As soon as things start going wrong, what happens? Naturally, those tribes, Ghatafan, Quraysh, etc., they start turning on one another. And they start getting whisperings that you know this tribe who is standing next to you, they're going to fight you after this. Or they're going to betray you. or they're gonna, And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put fear in their hearts in the sense that they ran away uh, and they turned around and left because these tribes would not, were not able, they were not naturally allies with one another. They had come together to fight against the Muslims and when the Muslims made it hard for them, with the trench and the arrows and the problems they were having and it was the weather was not suitable for them uh, and at the same time you have all these rumors that the person next to you is going to pull his sword out and attack you before he attacks the Muslims it caused them to break up the Prophet ﷺ returned to his home and put down his weapons and Jibreel came to him with dust on his head and said to him you have put down your weapons when I have not put down my weapons and Jibreel came to him and said, You have put down your weapons when I have not put down my weapons. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Where are we going? He said, To Bani Quraidah. And the angels preceded the believers to Bani Quraidah and struck fear into the hearts of Bani Quraidah. Now, Bani Quraidah were fortified. They had huge forts with ample food and water. And the Muslims were... Uh, laying siege to them in a situation where it should not have been you know if you look at the military outlier of this Bani Quraidah should have easily been able to defeat the Muslims 
because they had forts and they had ample food and plenty of food and water in them and the weather was not suitable for a siege the Muslims were cold and hungry and and some of them were wounded from Al-Hazab and they are laying siege to a people who are comfortable who have not fought remember because the promise of Bani Quraida is what was it basically we will not fight with you the Muslims but we will not fight against you we will basically uh, uh, support you and we will not fight and then when they sided with Quraysh they are you know they are fit they're healthy they have food they have fought they have forts and the Muslims have you know very little but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala struck fear into their hearts and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the angels to strike fear into the hearts of Bani Quraida and they were routed by the Muslims at this point when the Muslims captured them they asked for Sa'ad as we said who was injured in uh, the battle they asked uh, in the battle of Al-Hazab he was wounded a fatal wound and he knew he was dying and they asked for him to judge and they, they didn't want the Prophet Sallallahu to, to, to judge what would be done with them now bear in mind the military commander has the option he can enslave he can kill he can uh, let them free he can ransom them he has options they didn't want the Prophet Sallallahu to make that decision because they realized that you know he's not going to be he's not going to let us go this time you know when you make that judgment and they made that decision to side with the Ahzab they did so believing that the Ahzab are going to win the battle and believing that the Muslims are going to be defeated and that they would just basically finish up and take the women and children from the back and when it didn't work out for them they must have realized that they faced death because this is an, a huge betrayal and so they tried to get someone to intercede for them and so they asked Sa'ad who was wounded to intercede uh, or to judge with regard to them that they would only accept his judgment and the Prophet Sallallahu agreed and he made the judgment that every man or every male over the age of puberty be killed and that the women and children and the boys under the age of puberty be enslaved and the Prophet said you have judged with the judgment of Allah from above the seven heavens and they were not expecting this they thought that he was going to be and that he was going to be uh, lenient with regard to them because of what they had in the time of Jahiliya of the you know friendship between them and the you know pacts that they had and the agreements that they had between them that they thought that he was going to be lenient with them and instead he uh, gave a judgment which pleased Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which was that all of the boys or all of the males over the age of puberty be killed and all of the others the women the children and the young boys be enslaved then the poet talks about the the invasion of that and basically that happened after and there is some ikhtilaf on this issue after 
the battle or after the uh, siege of Bani Quraidah. And it was extremely hot. It was extremely hot. And it said that it was called the Battle of the Riqah because the Muslims had very little, uh, I think that some of the, some of the, uh, the people of Sira said they had one person per six people per one camel. And that they would have to walk on the hot desert floor till their, nail, their, their toenails came off from the heat of the, their toenails uh, fell off from the heat of the, of the ground. And that they had to wrap their feet, their bleeding feet in, in uh, rags. And for that reason it was called the battle of or the invasion of Virriqa'. This is one of the opinions regarding it and it has some evidence uh, with regard to that. As for the purpose of that battle, it was for the fighting of Muharib. Uh, it was for the uh, Bani Muharib and Bani Tha'laba from Ghatafan. Like fighting two of these big tribes from Ghatafan uh, towards the direction of Najd. The poet indicates there is a disagreement with regarding this and the disagreement is in the ordering of where these battles happened. But the correct opinion inshallah ta'ala is that it happened after Al-Khandaq as the poet said. Then the poet he mentions rahimahullah ta'ala كَيْفَ صَلَاتُ الْخَوْفِ وَالْقَصْرُ نُمِي وَآيَةُ الْحِجَابِ وَالتَّيَمُّمِ وَقِيلَ رَجْمُهُ الْيَهُودِيَّيْنِ وَمَوْلِدُ السِّبْطِ الرِّضَى الْحُسَيْنِ So the poet mentions a number of things that happen in this year at the same time. Uh, Salatul Khawf, the, the prayer of fear, and it's said that this uh, prayer of fear uh, or which battle this, uh, this prayer of fear was uh, revealed in, it was said it was in this battle, in the battle of the uh, Riqar. And it's said in other, in other battles. It's said the battle of Usfan uh, and the battle of that Riqar. And there's a long, um, you know, a long discussion by uh, Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala about when it happened. But broadly within this year, Salatul Khawf was revealed, the fear prayer. And likewise, Al-Qasr, which is the shortening of the, the prayers which are four in length to two for the purpose of traveling. So the Salatul Qasr, which is the, remember, originally the prayer was two raka'at, and then it became, the prayers, Dhuhr uh, and uh, Asr and Isha became four. Now there is a new rukhsa, a new allowance, which is when you travel, you can make your prayer that are four. You can make the prayers that are four into two. And Ayatul Hijab, Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala said, there is no disagreement that the ayah of hijab was revealed 
on the morning of the consummation of the marriage to Zainab bint Jahsh uh, anha. And likewise, at tayammum and at tayammum uh, was revealed in this year also. And the story behind the tayammum is well known with regard to uh, Aisha uh, radiallahu anha that she had lost a piece of her jewelry. Perhaps it was a necklace this time because it was a bracelet in al-ifq, I think, or the other way around. Uh, and uh, they had not found, and by the time they were all looking for it, they had not been able to get water. And so uh, the ayah of At-Tayammum was uh, revealed. Uh, in this one, it was, a, it was a bracelet. It was the bracelet of Aisha radiallahu anha. And this was after the battle of uh, Bani Mustaliq. And it said that in this year, the Prophet ﷺ stoned the two Jews, the Jewish man and the Jewish woman that committed adultery. And the story of this is also well known that, the, that when they committed adultery, the Prophet, they came to the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophet ﷺ said, what do you find in the Torah? And they lied about what was the ruling of the Torah. They said the ruling is that we should blacken their faces and we should put them on donkeys and uh, that we should, you know, back to back on a donkey and parade them around the streets. Then the Prophet ﷺ said to them, in kuntum Bring the Torah if you are truthful. So they brought it and the boy that was reading covered the ayah of stoning to death with his hand. And... Abdullah ibn Salam radiallahu an said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam command the boy to lift up his hand so he lifted it and underneath was the ayatul rajam the ayah of stoning stoning to death and so the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam commanded the two of them to be stoned to death Abdullah ibn Umar said I was among those who stoned them and I saw the man trying to shield the woman from the stones yani the that man that committed zina with her, the man trying to shield uh, the woman from the stones. And the birth of Al Hussein ibn Ali, radiallahu anhu, wa radiallahu anhuma wa arlahuma. Wa kana fil khamisati, wa kana fil khamisati, Al-Ifku fi ghazwi bani mustaliq O bani mustaliq In the fifth year after the hijrah was the event of Al-Ifq the lie that was made against Aisha during the battle of Banu al-Mustaliq Banu Mustaliq are a tribe from Bani Khuza'a and Mustaliq is one of their, their grandfathers, one of their ancestors and it's also known as Al-Muraysi'a, the battle of Al-Muraysi'a. So in some of the Sira books you'll hear it called as the battle of Banu Mustaliq 
and in some as the battle of Al-Muraysi'. Uh, Al-Muraysi'a refers to a, a well or a spring of some sort that belonged to them where the, uh, I mean, the fighting took place. And the Prophet ﷺ fought them and defeated them and many of them were killed and the women and children were taken as well as many animals and, and uh, yeah, any, uh, valuables that were taken from them. But it was in this battle or it was in relation to this battle that the story of Al-Ifq happened with Aisha when Aisha had lost a piece of uh, jewelry, uh, I believe a necklace belonging to, uh, or in, uh, yeah, belonging to Asma, anha. And when she had gone out to look for it and she was very, and she was very light in weight, uh, the people who were carrying her uh, her sort of canopy that she rode inside of on the camel, they did not notice the difference in weight. They did not because she was very, she was very young and also she was not, she was not heavy. So the four men or, who would lift up the canopy that she would ride in, she would ride in like a small tent with, with uh, poles on it that the men would lift up and they would put it onto the, they would put it onto the camel. And you can still see these if you don't know what they look like, you can actually type them in like a howdage. And you can see what they look like. And they look like a kind of a little tent with some poles and people lift them onto the camel. So they, Aisha had, had left again. She had gone to the bathroom and she had come back and she had realized that she had dropped something. So when she went back out to look for it, they didn't realize she had gone back out. And so they lifted up the, uh, the tent and they put it on top of the caravan, on top of the camel, and they left. And one of the Sahaba عنه, was given the, the job because he used to sleep late and he used to be known for being a heavy sleeper. So the Prophet ﷺ gave him the job of coming last to you know, follow the caravan, to follow the, the group of, or, or to follow the army, to find what was left or what was remaining if perhaps anything got left behind. Now Aisha came back and realized that they had already left. But she knew that they would soon realize. They would stop down the road, you know, after 20 miles, after whatever. They will stop. They will realize that Aisha is not there. And they will send somebody back. Or somebody will come from the rear and will, will realize. So she sat down in her place and she said that I was overcome by sleep. And she sat down in her place and she covered herself with her uh, hijab. And she went to sleep. The Sahabi, radiallahu anhu, came was given the job of coming behind when he came behind he saw something on the road like a, you know a, 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 um, yani a, an object on the on the road and when he came up her hijab had somewhat loosened or somewhat come away and he recognized that it is Aisha radiallahu anha so he got down from his camel uh, he mentioned the name of Allah Azza wa Jal until she woke up he got uh, down from his camel and he lowered his camel down and she climbed onto the camel and he walked holding the camel. At this point, the munafiqun took this as an opportunity to spread an evil slander about Aisha that she stayed in order to commit adultery with him. And in of itself, that would not have been been 
that rumor would not have gained traction if it were not for the fact that some of the Muslims in Medina also began to repeat the rumor. Because people like gossip and rumors. And so when the rumors went around, people from the Muslims began to also speak about it. Famously, one of them was Mistah, the, who was a relative of Abu Bakr and a relative of Aisha, uh, and a Sahabi, a noble Sahabi radiallahu And he was one of those people who spoke about or who spread the rumor regarding Aisha without, you know, it wasn't malicious in the sense that it wasn't, it wasn't that he, you know, the rumor was invented by the munafiqun, there is no doubt, by the hypocrites. But these Muslims were involved in, and there were famously three of them, that were involved in spreading that rumor without checking first the, the truth of what was said. And Aisha radiallahu anha didn't know that people were saying this about her until she went out to the bathroom one night with the mother of Mista. And when the mother of Mista, she tripped or she hit her toe on something and she said something evil about her son. She cursed him or she said some, you know, she said some evil words. And Aisha rebuked her and said to her, how can you say this about him when he is a companion of the Messenger of Allah and so on? She said, you don't know what he is saying about you. And at this point, Aisha came to know of what was being said about the Prophet, about her and about the adultery. At this point, Aisha became very sick. Um, she might have been sick before that, but she certainly became very, very sick. And she noticed that the Prophet ﷺ became very distant from her and he stopped being loving. Uh, famously, he would, when uh, he was being, she was being looked after by her mother, he would come and say, Any, How is she? Like just a very rough, very rough and very abrupt, you know, how is she? And just go. And she realized that the Prophet ﷺ was unsure of what to believe. Because he doesn't know the ghaib. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hadn't revealed anything to him. He took advice from his companions. He uh, spoke to people like the maid servant of Aisha radiallahu anha who defended her and said, I know nothing but good from her. I've never seen any such behavior from her. Uh, and some of the wives of the Prophet who defended Aisha and likewise to some of the Sahaba who said to the Prophet it's better that you divorce her. Famously Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu And people make that that this is the reason why you know, there was this calamity after in the, in the Khilafah of Ali was all because he said this about Aisha. That's not true. Ali radiallahu did not say that Aisha committed adultery. He said to the Prophet there are many women. Why are you effectively, why are you stressing yourself out? Why are you worrying about this? Divorce her and be done with it. Why, you know, like, why make yourself this hardship and this heartache over her? Just, you know, there are many women, let her, just let her go and it's better for you. And there's no doubt that, that uh, Aisha uh, had a great deal of affection for those people who defended her at that time when there was no revelation. And there were certain individuals from among the wives of the Prophet ﷺ and others who defended her even though they had, there was no, at that point there was no revelation that had been revealed. 
The Prophet ﷺ was neutral on the matter. He didn't know what the truth of it was, but so many people were speaking about it that it, it hurt him. And so Aisha requested to go to her family's uh, home. She left the house of the Prophet ﷺ and she went to stay with her family. And the Prophet ﷺ came and he sat down with uh, Abu Bakr and Umr Umman, who is the mother of Aisha, and Aisha radiallahu anha, radiallahu anhum ajma'in. And he said to Aisha that if you have done this, then repent to Allah. And Aisha was too upset. She said I was too, she was she was crying, she was unable to say anything, she could not defend herself. And she looked to her father and her mother and she said, Defend me. And they also were shy because in front of the Messenger of Allah, you do not want to, you know, Abu Bakr does not have the that to be able to, you know, speak to the to the Prophet in such a way. So he also remained quiet. Uh, and Aisha said that she turned her head and she covered herself and she was very distraught until Allah Azza wa Jal revealed the ayat in Surah An-Nur that Aisha was innocent uh, in this sitting that Aisha was innocent and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam recited these ayat and famously Abu Bakr said to or, or, or Umr Uman said to Aisha that go and thank your husband she said I will not thank my husband but I thank Allah she was still also any upset. Uh, and Aisha radiallahu anha said about this, I did not think that my situation, the ifk that happened, was significant enough that Allah would speak about it. And he, meaning that I did not think that such someone like me could have ayat of the Quran revealed that are recited until this day. Uh, and this was, yani these ayat are recited until this day in Surah An-Nur, a passage of ayat regarding the ifk, the incredible and immense lie and fabrication that was made against Aisha radiallahu anha. And there's no doubt that whoever after these ayat were revealed continued to say such a thing, there is no doubt this person is kafir. He's left the religion of Islam. And that's not to say that accusing a woman of adultery makes you kafir. But accusing a woman of adultery whom Allah Azza wa Jal has said did not do it is kufrun akbar and takes you outside of the religion of Islam. As for the, the Muslims who, and this is, this is something that you will see in the seerah, it happened more than once in the seerah, you will see that the Muslims who the punishment was carried out upon the Muslims who spread the rumor and the munafiqoon were left. And this happened, and this is really a punishment from Allah Azza wa Jal. Because we know that the hudud wipe out the sins. And the, the prescribed punishments wipe out the sins. And so the sins were of those Muslims like Mista, and they were, they were whipped uh, and uh, flogged for, their, for spreading this rumor without witnesses. And as for the munafiqoon, nothing was done to them. So that their punishment in the hereafter can be even greater. Because they will not have had anything done to them in the dunya to relieve what they did. And the same thing you will hear about, uh, about uh, Tabuk and the other you know, sort of events 
where Muslims fell into major sins or Muslims fell into errors, the punishment is carried out on them. As for the munafiqun who did not go to Tabuk, nothing is done to them. The Prophet accepts their excuses and just lets them go. Uh, and that's significant and important. The poet then says, he talks about Dumatul uh, Jendal, which is uh, an area, a town, or a, a village which is still known by this name uh, near to Al Madina, in which the Prophet وسلم, went out, and this was before the Battle of Bani Al Mustaliq. Uh, this was in Rabi' al Awwal, before the Bani, uh, Bani Mustaliq, which was in Sha'ban. And after the battle of Bani Mustaliq, the Prophet وسلم, married Juwayriya uh, bint al-Harith She was from those who were captured in the battle of Bani Mustaliq. And the, uh, they drew lots and her, she came to Thabit ibn Qais. The Prophet ﷺ then paid for her freedom and uh, freed her and married her uh, for himself. And it is said that a hundred of her family members were freed from slavery when she married the Prophet ﷺ because the companion said, how can we have the in-laws of the Prophet ﷺ as our slaves? And so they freed, and because of her, uh, yani a huge number of her tribes, people, uh, yani, uh, were freed. وَالتَّصَلْ yani, And the Prophet ﷺ consummated the marriage with her. وَأَقْتُ رَيْحَانَ تَفِيذِ الْخَامِسَةِ ثُمَّ بَنُوا لِحْيَانَ بَدْأَ السَّادِسَةِ then the Prophet ﷺ married Rayhana bint Zayd, and she was from those who were captured by uh, in the uh, siege of Bani Quraida. And the Prophet ﷺ freed her and married her. That was one opinion. And the other opinion is that she and and many people feel this is the stronger opinion is that Rayhana radiallahu anha remained as his slave and he uh, simply had relations with her according to the rules and laws of what Islam allows. Uh, and so some of them consider Rayhana to be a wife as was the choice of the poet and others, and perhaps this is the strongest opinion and it was chosen by Ibn al-Qayyim and Ibn Kathir that she was uh, she remained a slave of the Prophet وسلم, that he had intimate relations with. And there is no disagreement that she عنها, became a Muslim. Then was the battle of Banu Lihyan. And this was in Jumad al-Ula of the sixth year after the Hijrah, as Al-Hafidh Ibn Kathir ta'ala, said in Al-Fusul. And this was in order to get revenge for the uh, 
betrayal of some of the people that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had sent to them. And they were sieged in, up in the mountains. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam left them. He was not able to break that siege or to bring them down from the mountains that they fled to. And so the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam left them and returned without fighting. وَبَعْدَهُ اسْتِسْقَاؤُهُ وَذُو قَرَدٍ وَصُدَّ عَنْ عُمْرَتِهِ لَمَّا قَصَدٍ After this comes the istisqa of the Prophet ﷺ in the sixth year after the hijrah and the battle or the invasion that was the military expedition to Dhu Qarad. As for the istisqa, the seeking of rain, the scholars differ over which battle it was in. But in one of the battles, the mushrikun were able to get to the water source before the Muslims. And you know how this works generally. Uh, the first fight for the positioning, the first kind of jostling for the positioning of the army is to get to the water. And the mushrikun in this case were able to get the water supply and the Muslims had no water. So the munafiqun said, or some of them said, if he was really a prophet, he would have asked for rain like Musa asked for rain. And he criticizing the Prophet saying that, you know, if he was really a prophet, it would be raining by now. We're all thirsty, we're suffering here, they're drinking the water from the well. If he was really a prophet, it would rain. The Prophet said, Had they, did, they, did they really say such a thing? I hope that your Lord will give rain to you. Then he raised out his hands and he made dua and... By the time he, he lowered his hands from dua, the, the, uh, the uh, sky had been covered by clouds and the rain began to fall and the wadi felt filled up and the Muslims were able to drink. As for the Qarad, it's the battle of the, or, or the invasion, the expedition of the Qarad. And this was after the battle of Bani Lahyan by a few nights. Al-Hafid ibn Kathir said, then the Prophet ﷺ, when he had returned to Medina after a few nights, he went uh, to fight Uriyna uh, bint Hassan from Bani Abdullah bin Ghatafan regarding some camels or property of the Prophet ﷺ. Because what they had done is they had uh, gone to, they, the Prophet ﷺ had some camels uh, which were being looked after by a shepherd. They had gone to uh, that shepherd and killed the shepherd and stolen the camels. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam went out uh, and declared them to be, yani to, to, uh, that they should be, they should be found and they should be, uh, they should be killed or they should be attacked. And this was uh, done and the, uh, famously uh, it was Salama ibn, uh, ibn Amr ibn al-Aqwa al-Aslami radiallahu an uh, that was able to catch them up and he shot arrows at them. He said some famous lines uh, of poetry and they were able to take back from them what they had, most of what they had stolen from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sacrificed a particular camel at, at a particular watering spot 
to feed the Muslims and that watering spot was called Dhu Qarad and that was what the battle was named after. And then the poet talks about that the Prophet was prevented from making Umrah and this is the events of Hudaybiyah. Uh, the events of Hudaybiyah are important. In fact, I think that they are one of the most important events in the seerah uh, that you can take practical applications from today in a number of ways. As for what happened at Hudaybiyah, as you know that the Prophet ﷺ set out with his companions to make Umrah. And when the Prophet ﷺ reached the outskirts of Mecca or he reached Hudaybiyah, the, uh, the Quraysh prevented them from entering into Mecca. And Uthman ibn Affan uh, anhu, was sent to make a peace or to, make, to negotiate their entrance into Mecca. Why were they stopped? I mean, at the end of the day, now the situation has changed. This is not like a small group of people who are just coming to make Umrah. This is now, you know, a strong army that has defeated Quraysh multiple times, that has defeated other tribes like Ghatafan on the outskirts towards the direction of Najd, and now they have Quraysh scared. So Quraysh prohibited them from making Umrah. And at the same time, as the poet said, The poet, he says, and before that, because when Uthman was sent to make this negotiation, the rumor came that Uthman had been killed, that Quraysh had killed Uthman bin Affan. And so the Prophet took a pledge of allegiance to fight from all those who were present that they would uh, that they would fight in revenge for the killing of Uthman of course Uthman was not killed that they would fight in in uh, in revenge and this pledge was bay'atul ridwan about which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed laqad radiyallahu anil mu'minina idh yubay'unaka tahta ash-shajara fa'alima ma fi qulubihim fa'anzala as-sakinata 'alayhim wa athabahum fathan qariba as Allah said in Surah Al-Fatih, Allah was indeed pleased with the believers when they pledged allegiance to you under the tree and he knew what was in their hearts and he sent down tranquility upon them and gave them the reward of a close victory. The Treaty of Hudaybiyah, on the topic of Bayat al-Ridwan also, there is something useful in this as well which is that during the Khilafah of Umar radiallahu he cut down the tree of Ar-Ridwan. And he cut it down because people began to stop there as a place of barakah or a place of, you know, uh, spirituality that people would go to. And when Umar saw the danger of this tree, this area where the Ridwan pledge was made, the danger of this tree becoming an object of worship besides Allah, he cut it down. And this is an excellent evidence against those people who say, how can you take away the house of Abu Bakr from Makkah? How can you do this? How can you put this here? How can you remove this from Medina? How can you stop the people from going to this area or this area? In reality, if 
efforts are made to stop people from making shirk. And for a long time, the area of Badr, I think now it may be open, but for a long time, the area of Badr was closed to pilgrims. You couldn't go and see the Battle of Badr, where the Battle of Badr took place. Because the people used to go there and they used to make dua to the dead. Uh, and because it was outside of Medina and in an area where it wasn't as easy to control, they made a rule that you can't go to the, the, the Ard al-Ma'rika. You can't go to Badr, to the area where the battle took place. And the people said, these people are doing this and doing... Aslan, this has a delay. This is the same as what Umar radiallahu anh did. Umar cut down the tree that Allah said, Allah is pleased with the believers who pledged under this tree. One of the greatest events that happened in the seerah and Umar cut down the tree because the people began to just began to show signs that they might possibly take this as an object of worship besides Allah and that doesn't mean we don't respect historical sites but any the preservation of people's belief and so on is more important than historical sites and places as for the battle of, or the treaty of Hudaybiyah, there are numerous things that we want to mention. We don't have a lot of time, so we're just going to go as quickly as possible. But from them is, the, is that the Prophet ﷺ effectively agreed to a, a treaty with Quraysh that was vahiran, yani in the apparent sense, extremely unjust. Extremely unjust towards the Muslims. from the conditions was that the Muslims would not make Umrah this year and they would make Umrah after they would make Umrah the following year from the conditions of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was that anyone who became Muslim had to be returned to the Kuffar so somebody comes to Medina and says I'm a Muslim the Muslims have to take them and expel them from Medina into the hands of the non-Muslims and that anyone who leaves Islam from the Muslims has to be given, is, is, or is free to, these people, they go to Quraysh, and Quraysh don't have to return them to the Muslims. Someone who does that and they, they flee to Quraysh, Quraysh don't have to give them back to the Muslims, but the Muslims have to give back the reverts to Islam to them. So this is a treaty that it's in its apparent sense is extremely unjust. But the barakah, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put in those events effectively led to everything that came after from the conquest of Makkah and all of the things that happened and the defeat of Quraysh and ultimately the, conquer of the conquering of the Arabian Peninsula all happened because of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. From the lessons that we take from this that are extremely important is the permissibility of making an unfair treaty with non-Muslims, including that they should have control over some of the holy sites of Islam in order to achieve a greater goal later on. The Muslims gave the Kaaba to Quraysh for a year. The Muslims agreed to a treaty that was, in its apparent nature, incredibly unjust. To the point that they came and they, when the Prophet ﷺ wrote, or when it was written for him, from Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah, they said, cross out the Messenger of Allah because we don't believe you are the Messenger of Allah. And if we believed you were the Messenger of Allah, there would not be this disagreement between us. 
to the point that he even had it crossed out. And Ali radiallahu anhu, I believe was the, the one writing, he said, I cannot cross it out. So the Prophet said, show me where the words are. And with his own hands, he, he blotted out Messenger of Allah. I mean, to that extent that the treaty, they will not even give him his name in the treaty. And yet he agreed to it. And that tells us that there will be times today in countries in the world where the Muslims are oppressed and the best solution for them is to make a treaty with their oppressors even if that treaty is based upon injustice. And one of those areas which comes to mind instantly is the situation in Philistine. And would you believe that there are Muslims today who made takfir, they declared the ulama who said you should make a treaty with the Yahud to be kafir. They said you are kafir for saying this, for saying that you should make a treaty between the Palestinians and between the Yahud. They said whoever says this is kafir. What do they say about the Prophet ﷺ in Hudaybiyah? He gave what is more beloved than Masjid al-Aqsa. The Kaaba, which is the most beloved of the, of the places to Allah And he gave it to the Mushrikeen. Giving them authority over it. So we should not be yani, controlled by emotion. Where people say, how can you make a treaty with the Yahud? How can you call for this? Didn't the Prophet ﷺ do the exact same thing in Hudaybiyah? When the Muslims were not able to do anything, when they were not able to achieve anything. And look at what the outcome of Hudaybiyah was. That treaty, even though it favored Quraysh in every single aspect. But the Muslims were able to, because of that, we got relief from Quraysh, from the battles. They, were, they got a chance to build up their strength. And ultimately, they were able to completely conquer the Arabian Peninsula because of this treaty. So we say that people should not be gripped by emotion when they make such statements that don't make treaties with people. How can you make a treaty with the kuffar? How can you agree to work with them? How can you? When the Prophet did the exact same thing in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. These events are there to give you a lesson so that you realize that there will be situations where Muslims are not in command, are not in control. And there is a need for a peace treaty with a people who have no love for us and we have no love for them. And a people who want nothing but our destruction. As Quraysh wanted nothing but the destruction of the Prophet and the, and, and the Sahaba. But the Prophet gave this treaty and this treaty was hard for the Sahaba to the point where they refused to shave their head and to sacrifice their animal and to go back. They didn't refuse a refusal of disobedience to the Prophet but a refusal of dismay and not even, you know, and just shock that really, you know, after we've pledged that we're going to fight because they had thought that Uthman had been killed and we pledged that we're going to fight and, and now that's it, we just shave our heads and go home. Agreeing that everyone who comes to Medina, we're going to send them back. And, you know, like, they were shocked. It was hard for them. And yet, uh, they agreed when the Prophet ﷺ sought the advice of one of his wives. And she said, O Messenger of Allah, if you go out, 
and sacrifice your animal and shave your head, the people will copy. Because they're not disobeying out of, they're not refusing out of disobeying. It's not that they don't want to follow. They're just in shock. So when they see you do it, they will follow you. So the Prophet went out and in front of the people, he slaughtered his animal and he shaved his head. And then the people began to slaughter their animals and shave their heads and they returned back to Medina. Now, what was the outcome of that? First of all, did anyone from the Muslims leave Islam? And say, okay, no, in the first place, this is never going to happen. Secondly, those people who came to Medina, the Prophet fulfilled the pledge. Whoever came to Medina from Makkah, the Prophet said, I have an agreement, I will stick to it. You have to leave and go back. So the Muslims would escort them to the limit of the Muslim empire at that time, which is between Makkah and Medina. They don't, they're not, they're not going to take them to Makkah and drop them at the door of the Kaaba. Yani they took them to, the, they said, you can't stay within the Muslim lands. This is the agreement. So as soon as they left the Muslim lands, what did they do? The Prophet has expelled them from Medina. These are reverts, new Muslims. They were expelled from Medina. They're now on the road between Makkah and Medina, outside of the authority of the Muslim lands. So they're free people now. They're not under the authority of the Muslim lands, and they're not required to deliver themselves to the Kaaba. That's not the agreement. The agreement is they can't live in the Muslim lands. So they encamp on the road between Makkah and Medina and just make a nightmare for Quraysh. They attack Quraysh. They just make any, so many problems for Quraysh that led to the conquest, that ultimately led to the conquest of Makkah. Because basically, the Prophet didn't break his agreement. He will never break his agreement. As long as they fulfill your, their side of the bargain, you fulfill yours. But nobody said they had to be delivered to the door of the Kaaba. So instead, they end up encamped, all of these new Muslims, in an area which is outside of the Muslim lands. And they just make trouble for Quraysh. That every time a caravan goes by, shoot a few people, kill a few people, take a few things, to the point that these people are becoming more of a problem for Quraysh than the people in Medina. Because there is a treaty between the people in Medina, but there's no treaty with them. And there's nothing Quraysh can say because they turn around and say, you made the treaty, you said we have to leave. And so ultimately they were able to return back to Medina because Quraysh simply couldn't have any patience with them sitting in the middle of the road and attacking every caravan that goes by. And Hudaybiyah gave the Muslims a break from fighting Quraysh. And that was an important break. It was not a break out of weakness, but it was a break that allowed them to regroup and to strengthen themselves and to build up the army that would ultimately conquer Makkah. And so we said, and I kept using the word apparently, the apparent treaty of Hudaybiyah favored Quraysh. Apparently it was oppressive. Apparently it was unjust. But in reality, Every single thing that the Muslims got out of Hudaybiyah was nothing but good. They ultimately, Quraysh, let those new Muslims go back into Medina. The Muslims were able to go and conquer uh, Khaybar. 
and were able to get victories in other battles against other people because they didn't have to worry about Quraysh. And they made the Umrah, Umrah al-Qadha, the following year, as the poet is now going to come on to. He said, وَفُرِضَ الْحَجُّ بِخُلْفٍ فَاسْمَعَهُ وَكَانَ فَتْحُ خَيْبَرٍ فِي السَّابِعَةِ The scholars disagreed over when Hajj became obligatory. Some said it became obligatory in the seventh or the, in the sixth year of, after the Hijrah or the seventh year after the Hijrah. And others said in the ninth year after the Hijrah. And the poet takes the opinion that Hajj was made obligatory in, uh, after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. In the sixth year after the Hijrah, and that the Fath of Khaybar that Allah promised, Fathan Qariba, a close victory, was the, was the conquest of Khaybar, which happened in the seventh year after the Hijrah. And in the Battle of Khaybar, certain things happened which the poet will talk about. He said, And it became haram to eat the meat of the domesticated donkey. As for the wild donkey, which is like the zebra uh, and you know those kind of animals, they are permissible to eat. But those which are domesticated, the domesticated donkey, became haram to eat in the battle of Khaybar. And likewise, muta'a was made haram in the battle of Khaybar. Muta'a is where you enter into a marriage with an agreement that that marriage will be temporary. So for example, it used to be permissible for a man to go to a woman with her wali and to make an agreement that they would marry for a month. And then after a month, the marriage would expire. And that this would be written in the contract. That after one month, the marriage will expire. I marry my daughter to you for one month. I marry my daughter to you for one week. This is muta'a. And this was permissible in the beginning. And it benefited the Muslims at that time. And then when it came to the battle of Khaybar, the Prophet ﷺ declared that it was haram and it became, the ruling became abrogated that now it is no longer allowed to marry for a temporary amount of time. Now muta'a doesn't mean that they necessarily, you know, some people paint it in the, sort of eyes of marrying for an hour or marrying for a day or something like that. But ultimately, that's not necessarily what it is. Muta'a is to marry for a temporary amount of time. And to agree that the marriage will expire on a certain date. Uh, and that would often be a short time. They could marry for three days or they could marry for one week or whatever. Or it could be for a longer time. They could marry for three months or four months or whatever. Uh, but all of that was made haram. There remains one mas'ala, is it permissible for a person to marry a woman with that intention as long as he doesn't speak about it? And is it allowed for a man to say, I'm marrying this woman, but I'm only intending to marry her for a week and then I'm going to divorce her. As long as he doesn't speak about it and he doesn't write it in the contract, many of the scholars say it's permissible. And in the sense that it doesn't, because he hasn't done anything to break the nikah, it's something that he's kept in his nafs. 
And he may follow that up or not follow it up. And he may divorce her, he may not divorce her because it's not something that is automatic that when the week comes up, you're divorced. Instead, it's something that he's kept in himself as a secret that I'm not planning on fulfilling this marriage. But there's no doubt that this is from, you know, al-akhlaq al-radi'ah, from, from bad manners and, you know, bad etiquette that a person should marry a woman and give a false impression that he wants to marry her for, you know, for, for, for life and really he's intending to marry her only for a month or only for a week or something like that. But in terms of the validity of the marriage, the marriage is valid. And the marriage is not invalid because he kept in his heart that he wants to divorce her after a week. Right? Because there is no reason for the marriage to be invalid. But it is blameworthy in that characteristic and you don't marry your daughter to somebody who has that personality within them that they just want to marry for a week or they just want to marry for a month. ثُمَّ عَلَىٰ أُمِّ حَبِيبَةٍ عَقَدٍ وَمَهْرَهَا عَنْهُ النَّجَاشِيُّ نَقَدٍ Then the Prophet ﷺ married Umm Habiba, Ramla, binti Abi Sufyan, radiyallahu anhuma. And she was in Al-Habasha from those people who had not yet made hijrah to Medina in Al-Habasha. And Al-Najashi, rahimahullah ta'ala, paid her mahar on behalf of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وَسُمَّ فِي شَاتٍ بِهَا هَدِيَّةٍ ثُمَّ اصْطَفَى صَفِيَّةً صَفِيَّةً The Prophet ﷺ in the same year was poisoned by a sheep that was gifted to him. And we know that Allah informed the Prophet ﷺ about the poison. And he did not die from it and he did not eat from it and die from it. But what he did do is he became, it, it troubled him until he died. And the correct opinion, the rajih in my opinion, is that the Prophet died from the poison. Ultimately. But he did not die, he did not obviously die immediately. But he was troubled with, with pain and sickness from the time that he took that poisoned sheep until the time that he died. And there are riwayat and hadith sahihah that indicate that the ultimate reason for the sickness that caused his death was the poison that he took. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the hadith is in Bukhari and Muslim from the hadith of Anas ibn Malik radiallahu an. Then the Prophet sallallahu alayhi married Safiyyah binti Huyay radiallahu and he freed her and he freed her and he married her and again the hadith is in As-Sahihain from the hadith of Anas ibn Malik Then whoever was left in Al-Habasha came to Medina to make hijrah and the final hijrah happened from al-habasha all those who remained in al-habasha and famously among them ja'far ibn abi talib and the prophet ﷺ said to ja'far ma adri ana bi qadumi ja'far asarru aw bi fath khaybar the prophet ﷺ said i do not know whether i'm happier about ja'far coming or happier about the 
conquest of Khaybar. And reality, any subhanAllah, that shows the happiness the Prophet had for Ja'far bin Abi Talib radiallahu anhu coming from Al-Habasha and the remaining people uh, yani, who came. And then the marriage to Maymuna, which was the last marriage that the Prophet made, bearing in mind the ikhtilaf regarding Maria. And the correct opinion is that Maria was a slave of the Prophet and she wasn't, he didn't marry her. Uh, Maria, the mother of Ibrahim, radiallahu anha, uh, but the last of the, the women the Prophet ﷺ married was Maymuna bint al-Harith al-Hilaliya radiallahu ta'ala anha. وَقَبْلُ إِسْلَامُ أَبِي هُرَيْرَةِ وَبَعْدُ عُمْرَةُ الْقَادَ الشَّهِيرَةِ And before, any before the battle of Khaybar was the Islam of Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu. It's a very beautiful story. You really should listen to it. Uh, we don't have time to cover it in, in, in full detail, inshallah, so that we can get through all of the points. Uh, but the story of the Islam of Abu Hurairah and his mother is well worth uh, you reading up on uh, and doing some research on. And after that, after that battle was Umratul Qada, the, uh, the Umrah, which was making up for the, um, the previous Umrah. And in that, there is... Uh, in Umratul Qada, there was also uh, the Islam of uh, yani some uh, well-known people among the uh, among the uh, Sahaba, radiAllahu anhum, uh, became Muslim at that time. And if I'm not mistaken, around that time is possibly Khalid ibn al-Walid and some other well-known Muslims at that time. Yani. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he was a guard for the Muslims when they made Umratul Qada. And he, a guard for the non-Muslims when they made Umratul Qada and then he left to the Prophet after that. The Rusul any the messengers that were sent out to the kings. And so the Prophet ﷺ sent letters to the kings of the regions. And this is another thing that comes out of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Because now the Muslims have the ability to turn their eyes towards Ar-Rum. And Ar-Rum is, I think, the proper way to describe Ar-Rum is to say the Eastern Roman Empire, I think. And I, I've never really managed to find like the, the detail on this because Arum, the Arabs use Arum for the Europeans in general, and including the Greeks and you know the generally you know the European part of Turkey and all that. They call them Arum. And you have the Byzantine Empire and you have the Roman Empire. Now what we call the Roman Empire generally we we refer when we in in england at least when we talk about the roman empire we talk about the western roman empire any the empire that conquered the uk and you know europe and whatever any uh, based in rome and this was the western roman empire 
as far as I can see, all of the people that the Arabs called Arum were from the Eastern Roman Empire. And basically the Byzantine and the, you know, the, the Roman Empire that conquered parts of Near Asia uh, and uh, Greece and, you know, the northern parts like Syria and places like that. And that they were, they, they were known as the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, and they lasted longer than the Western Roman Empire. And they are the ones known as Ar-Rum. Anyways, the Prophet ﷺ sent, uh, it may be also true that the Prophet ﷺ was able to send uh, to the Western Roman Empire. I don't know the dates of when that finished and started because you have basically two. But the Prophet ﷺ sent a letter to the, to, the, to the leader of the Roman Empire at the time. And likewise to the leader of the Persian Empire and... Uh, it said also to uh, An-Najashi and I presume An-Najashi here <coughs> I haven't found out or I haven't had time to research what the meaning is or which ruler is intended by An-Najashi here because An-Najashi uh, became Muslim uh, and his janazah happened after this unless there was another ruler who took over with that name uh, and Allah knows best but in any case the Prophet ﷺ sent Amr ibn Umayyah al-Damri to al-Najashi and he sent Dihya al-Kalbi to Qaisar, to Caesar, the, uh, the king of Rome and he sent Abdullah ibn Hudhafa al-Sahmi to the king of Persia. And famously, the, the story of Abdullah ibn Hudhafa al-Sahmi is also well worth uh, listening to uh, the two things. First of all, when he uh, went to the Persian emperor and the Persian emperor ripped up his, the letter into pieces and the Prophet ﷺ said he ripped up the letter, may Allah rip up his kingdom. And then they sent two people to, to kidnap the Prophet ﷺ and bring him to Persia uh, from Yemen. And he two Yemenis, uh, who were, Yemen was under the control of the Persian king. And uh, when they came, the Prophet ﷺ said, tell them to come tomorrow. And when they came, the Prophet ﷺ told them that their Persian king had been killed by his son. And he gave them the, the details of that. And when he, they went and verified the news, they became Muslim because they realized that there was no way that he could have known in a single night what had happened all the way in Persia. Uh, and then the story of Abdullah ibn Hudhafa Sahmi when he was threatened by the king of Rome, the emperor of Rome, to be put into the boiling oil. And, uh, yeah, and he, kissed his, he ended up kissing his head and, in the time of Umar. And Umar commanded all of the Muslims to kiss the head of Abdullah ibn Hudhafa al-Sahmi. This is also worth yani, reading the story of Abdullah ibn Hudhafa al-Sahmi. As of course it is with all of the Sahaba. Radiallahu anhum wa ardahum. وَأُهْدِيَتْ مَارِيَةُ الْقِبْطِيَّةِ فِيهِ وَفِي الثَّامَنَةِ السَّرِيَّةِ لِمُؤْتَةٍ سَارَتْ وَفِي الصِّيَامِ the next thing that the poet deals with is the gifting of Maria al-Qibtiyya. Maria al-Qibtiyya was a slave that was gifted by Muqawqis, the king of Alexandria. And when the letter of the Prophet ﷺ came to the king of Alexandria, he was pleased by it and he, he, he wanted or he leaned towards Islam. And he leaned towards Islam, but ultimately he did not become Muslim. 
And he, he almost became Muslim, but he didn't become Muslim. And you know the similar things that are said about, about uh, Heracl as well. Uh, Heraclius, that also he wanted to become Muslim, but he just, you know, he just sort of paused on the edge of it and stepped back. Uh, similar happened to the king of Alexand uh, the Alexandria. Uh, but ultimately, he gave the Prophet ﷺ Maria as a gift. And the scholars differ over whether the Prophet ﷺ married Maria or whether he, uh, she remained as a slave. But most people say that the, the stronger opinion is that she remained anha, as a slave. And again, there is no disagreement that she became Muslim anha. And then in the same, uh, at the same time was the expedition to Mu'tah. Now, this is called a Sariya, so it's not a Ghazwa, which means the Prophet ﷺ did not take part in this. And this is the first time that Khalid ibn al-Walid becomes famous as a general of the Muslim army uh, in the Battle of Mu'tah. And that is that the Prophet ﷺ informed First of all, he gave the flag to Ja'far radiallahu an, and they fought against, uh, in the battle of Mu'tah, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sent them to fight uh, in, uh, it's an area in Sham, and they were fighting against uh, this huge army, this huge army, and they found a very narrow area to fight against them, and this is, you know, something that they would do, they found a, you know, an area to fight. And initially Ja'far radiallahu an took the, the, the leadership of the Muslims and he was killed. And the Prophet ﷺ said that if Ja'far is killed, then it was given first of all to, there were three, but the, the narration I have here only mentions two. It mentions Ja'far and it mentions Abdullah ibn Rawaha. And there was a third, which has escaped my memory at the moment. It's not in this narration that I have here. But in any case, Ja'far died and then Abdullah ibn Rawaha took as the Prophet commanded. He said if, if, if Ja'far dies, then Abdullah ibn Rawaha should take the flag. So he took the flag and he fought bravely and he was killed. And after the Prophet named those people, he said, they said, and if he is killed, then the matter is between you and you may choose whoever you wish. And they chose Khalid ibn al-Walid, who was a regular soldier in the army at that time. He didn't turn up from Makkah and then he was, you know, it's like straight away you are the general of the army. Rather, the Prophet ﷺ did not even include him in the list of generals. But he, after the last person, Abdullah ibn Rawaha, was killed, the Prophet ﷺ left the matter open for them. He said that if he, is, if he is wounded or killed and he can't fight, then the matter is between you. And they chose Khalid ibn al-Walid and he did a very, very famous military tactic in which he was able to get a retreat for the Muslims, but also a victory. And it's really strange because the Muslims realized we have to retreat. We are not going to be able to win against this army. It is a huge army in, in Syria. And they had found a very narrow pass to fight in, so they were, doing, they, were, they were killing many of their army. But you had the numbers were just immense. So the Muslims were killing the, 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 uh, the opposing army, in large numbers, but not large enough to make an impact. So, you know, they would kill 10,000, but there is like 100,000 or whatever. They just keep coming and coming and coming. And it's not, they're not getting anywhere. 
So Khalid decides they need to retreat, but he wants to get victory out of defeat. And he still wants, he, he wants the army to flee so the Muslims can retreat. He doesn't want to fight, he wants to retreat. But he still wants the other army to be defeated. So what he did is he famously swapped the army over and put the right on the left and the left on the right and made them all wear new clothes and beat the ground. And you know, basically he gave the impression that there is a, a reinforced army. And when they had the, you know, they had those, you know, they used to what they call it, parley, basically, you know, they used to have these discussions between the leaders of the army. It was all very, you know, sort of well-mannered, you know, that the, the leaders of the army used to trot out on horses to each other and have discussions. Basically, they got the, the opposing army got told that you saw how many people we killed with this little band of men. We have reinforcements. Now we're going to wipe you out. And it, there were no reinforcements at all. In fact, all that Khalid had done is swap the army around so that everyone looked like it looked like there were fresh faces and they didn't recognize the people that they faced up against. And they, the, uh, the opposing army fled. They fled and ran away because they, they lost morale that if we have been, you know, if this tiny group of people have killed so many of us, how are we going to survive against reinforcements? And they, they turned and they fled. And the Muslims also retreated and were able. So it was a victory. It was a victorious battle, even though effectively the Muslims were wanting to retreat. And it's known that when Khalid approached Medina, he felt scared because he had retreated. And he felt that perhaps the Prophet will be angry with me for retreating instead of fighting to the death and chasing them and, you know, just fighting, fighting to the death. And the Prophet informed him that what he did was the right thing. And this also tells you that it is permissible for a Muslim general, if he believes that his army will be defeated, rather in the opinion of the former Dahib, it is wajib for him to retreat. And that's different from, from sacrifice, like martyrdom. Because people often mix these two. This is an important masala, because it has a direct link to issues that are relevant to us today. And that is the difference between sacrifice as in martyrdom and between strategic retreat. Many people think that Muslims in battle are required to just martyr themselves left, right and center. And you just, you know, put your neck out and let the enemy take the sword down and just, you know, kill yourself. It doesn't matter if your enemy will kill 200 after that. That is nothing to do with Islam. And the four madahib, to the best of my knowledge, are of the opinion that it is wajib for the commander to preserve the lives of his soldiers. Yes, there is a concept of sacrifice, but sacrifice when it gets you something. So yes, we are willing to sacrifice the life of a Muslim soldier in return for what? In return for causing a great harm to the enemy. But this idea that we just go along and put our necks out and let the enemy chop it off is an idea which is foreign to Islam and not a part of Islam. And this is a good argument to use against those people who justify things like suicide bombing, uh, along with all the other arguments about not killing yourself and so on and so forth. The premise that they base it upon is that it's okay for a person to sacrifice himself for no benefit. And they say, yes, we know that, yeah, you know, he might kill 10 people, but then, you know, they will come and kill 200 people, but it doesn't matter. 
because he's a martyr. That's not the purpose, that's not the concept. That doesn't, martyrdom doesn't exist in that concept in Islam. Rather, the concept is if you are able to hurt your enemy and the person goes and makes an effort and he fights against the enemy and ultimately he's killed, but he killed any, some of the enemy and so on and so forth, then uh, this is different from the person who you know, just goes and puts his neck out and says that, you know, just strike my neck because I want to be martyred. And this is, not a, not, this is also an important mas'ala that you will benefit from the seerah. And there are many other evidences against that, including the evidence of not killing yourself and many other evidences. But this is one argument that is important because these people do things and when you tell them that the aqibah, the outcome of that which you did was that the Muslims suffered immensely, they say, yeah, but you know, this was fi sabilillah. There is no such concept, this like idea that you can, it doesn't matter what you do if you're martyred, you know, it doesn't matter that after that they come and kill 200 or 500 or 10,000 of your people, but you know you are martyred. That's not a concept that exists in Islam and this is a battle which is an, among the many evidences for this. Also among the evidences is the fact that nobody among the Muslims ever killed himself and was praised for it in battle. Rather, everyone was killed by the sword of their enemy. Everyone whom the Prophet prayed, praised for martyrdom was killed by the sword or the arrow or the spear of their enemy. And not a single one of them was ever killed by his own sword or his own spear or his own arrow except that the Prophet criticized him. And this is from among the evidences as well that you can use from the seerah in addition to the well-known ayat. And then the poet goes on to talk about the last hugely significant uh, event that we have to talk about, which is Fathu Makkah, the conquest of Makkah. Uh, and the conquest of Makkah, it's not the last battle to happen in Islam, but it's probably the last of the major battles in the life of the Prophet or the major sort of events in the life of the Prophet and of course it is the, the, the battle which led to or the, the expedition which led to إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ and this surah as it was understood by the Sahaba is a surah which was revealed to inform the death of the Prophet which is why that when you read the surah if you don't know the tafsir you read it and you feel happy. إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ وَرَأَيْتَ النَّاسَ يَدْخُرُونَ فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ أَفْوَاجًا فَسَبِّحْ بِحَمْدِ رَبِّكَ وَاسْتَغْفِرْهِ إِنَّهُ كَانَ تَوَّابًا This is a wonderful thing. You know the Fath of Makkah and the people are becoming Muslim in crowds and everything is fine. The Sahaba understood that this surah is not a surah that is intended to make you happy. It is a surah that was revealed to tell you that the Prophet ﷺ is going to die. And that's how they understood it. Because why? Because the Prophet ﷺ is there on this earth for a job. And when that job is done, the sunnah of Allah is that when the job of the Prophets is done, that Prophet will pass away. And إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ is a surah which effectively says, O Muhammad, your job is done and now you're going to pass away. And that is how the Sahaba understood this surah. The Prophet 
set out to Mecca with a huge army. And he divided it up into groups. Among them was Khalid ibn al-Walid who led a group and he commanded them not to fight. He commanded them that none of you should fight unless they engage you first. None of you must fight unless they engage you first. Of course, before that, we have to be clear that Quraysh broke their pact. Because as we, uh, as we said, and this is probably going to come, uh, in, it's going to come, inshallah, in the following lines of poetry, that uh, Quraysh broke their pact. And they did not fulfill their side of the bargain. And so once they broke their pact, and as Allah Azza had told us, as long as they fulfill their end, you fulfill yours. But when Quraysh broke their end of the bargain, it set up the Prophet to be able to conquer Mecca. And he came with a huge army, it was broken up, and they were told not to fight unless they fight you. Don't fight them at the Masjid al-Haram unless they fight you there first. And the only group that had any fighting, the only group that had any resistance is the one led by Khalid ibn al-Walid. Because some of his friends that he had tried to bring to Medina to make Muslim, because Khalid, before he went to Medina with his Islam, he went around on a little da'wah trip of Makkah trying to get different people to become Muslim. And some of those people had a great resentment that Khalid had left. And so they faced Khalid and they fought against him. And there was minimal, minimal fighting. But the only fighting that happened was that group that went with Khalid ibn al-Walid. And the Prophet ﷺ was able to conquer Makkah. And as the Prophet ﷺ said, that Makkah is a haram. Makkah is a sanctuary. Fighting is not allowed in it. And it was only made halal for me for an hour in the day. And an hour doesn't have to mean in 60 minutes, but a period of time in the day. That Allah Azza wa Jal made Makkah halal for a period of time only. The only time that Makkah was ever made halal was that one particular time when it was made halal for the Prophet ﷺ to fight and there was minimal fighting and then Makkah returned to becoming a haram, a place where it is forbidden to fight uh, in. When the Prophet ﷺ conquered Makkah, he gathered the people of Quraysh together. And of course, many of them had become Muslim. And the Prophet ﷺ had made it easy for them, in a way, to become Muslim. So one of the things that the Prophet ﷺ had done is that he had said, whoever enters the house of so-and-so is safe. Whoever enters the house of so-and-so is safe. Whoever a Muslim gives protection to is safe. So he had really put numerous things in place to make it possible for people to escape fighting. So instead of coming with the army and, being, and withdrawing the sword and being, you know, sort of like, okay, who's he who wants to fight? He does everything possible to avoid fighting. So he set up safe uh, sanctuaries and of course the Muslims have this beautiful uh, principle of al-ijar which is that if one of the Muslims gives protection to someone the Muslims all give protection to him and some of the enemies of the Prophet ﷺ, whom he wanted to kill were given protection 
by sometimes some of the women among the Muslims. And the Prophet ﷺ upheld their promise of protection. In some of the narrations he said, لَقَدْ أَجَرْنَا مَنْ أَجَرْتِ We have given, we will give protection to the one that you have given protection to. You imagine an old lady gives protection to one of the major figures of Quraysh. She says, you are protected under my, under my name. And the Prophet ﷺ upholds that. This is also a very good evidence to use in your research. You can bring out the names and things. Little, very little time. You can bring out the, you know, the names and the events where this happened because it happened multiple times. Is, an, is again to show the status of women in Islam. You know that, this, that there are women who give protection to someone. And people, not only women, but also men, you know, from the, you know, who are not from the major Sahaba, who give protection to people, who are, their, their names have been put on a, you know, they, they, the bounty has been put on their head. The people are looking for them to kill them. And in certain people, the Prophet ﷺ put a bounty on their head in the conquest of Makkah. He said, this one, this one, this one, go and kill them. Because of the evil that they had done to the Muslims. And that if they were protected, and that some of them were protected by various people from the Sahaba, among them the women, the Prophet ﷺ would agree with that protection. And he would honor it. Even though that person has no status in the sight of the Prophet ﷺ, except that they are Sahabi. I mean, they have nothing. There is no, you know, they have no, you know, huge tribal allegiance or something like that. Just that they said, I will protect you. And the Prophet ﷺ said, we will honor the agreement of protection that is given. And then the Prophet ﷺ, when he gathered the people of Quraysh, and this was the Fath of Makkah was in the month of Ramadan, when he gathered the people of Quraysh together and he said to them, what do you think that I will do to you? And they began to praise him. They began to say, you are the, you know, you are the best of us, the son of the best. Look at how it changes. Yani. Like they called him every name under the sun and they called him such evil and did such evil to him. And yet when he gathered them together, they start to praise him because now, and he, he's the one in control now. And he's taken the Kaaba, he's taken Makkah. Makkah is now a Muslim city. And he says, what do you think I will do to you? They said, you are the son of the best of us and the son of the best. And you know, they start to praise him and his family. He said, go. For I, you know, I have forgiven you. I have, let, I have let it go today. And so many of them became Muslim because of that. Many, many people became Muslim after the Fetch of Makkah because of the way the Prophet ﷺ treated them that they realized that what would they have done? And he turned the tables around. If those people had conquered Medina and they were stood in the Masjid al-Nabawi with the Prophet ﷺ in front of them and their swords drawn, what would they have done to him? They knew in their hearts they would have killed him. And when the Prophet ﷺ said to them, go, you are free. There is nothing against you today. They realized that the Prophet ﷺ did not conquer Makkah for revenge. He did not conquer Makkah because he had a problem with Quraysh or because he had some sort of revenge that he wanted or some sort of power that he wanted. But he conquered Makkah for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make the word of Allah the highest and the word of those who disbelieve the lowest. And from the things, the events that happened is the Prophet went around all of those idols, those 360 idols in the Kaaba saying, قُلْ جَاءَ الْحَقُّ وَزَهَقَ الْبَاطِلِ إِنَّ الْبَاطِلَ كَانَ زَهُوقًا and the idols would 
collapse and fall down when the Prophet would gesture towards them, say the truth has come and falsehood has been banished. Indeed, falsehood is ever banished. Then the poet continues, وَبَعْدَهُ قَدْ أَوْرَدُوا مَا كَانَ فِي يَوْمِ حُنَيْنٍ ثُمَّ يَوْمِ الطَّائِفِ The poet goes on to talk about two things. He goes on to talk about the battle of Hunayn and the battle of Taif. Now imagine the battle of Hunayn. You've just come off the conquest of Mecca. There's been no killing. So your army is completely fresh. They're not wounded. They're generally in, you know, they are, they're in a good state. They're, they're on a high because of they've conquered Mecca. They've got their homeland back and they go out to Hunayn. And it's also known as Ghazwat Awtas. And it's also known as Ghazwat Hawazan. And when the army came up and it was huge, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, A'jabatkum kathratukum. You were amazed by your large numbers. You like, today, there is no one going to beat us today. We have an army of Muslims, we have a huge number, we, all, we outnumber the enemy for the first time. The Hunayn is probably the first battle where the Muslims have a significant military advantage. And what happens? They lose. As a lesson from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not to be impressed by your numbers and not to be you know, not to believe that just that everything is done and we no longer need to work and we no longer need to, because now we are in the ascendancy. So initially they lost and then again they recovered and they were able to overcome in the Battle of Hunayn. And uh, you can read more about that, inshallah, in the books of the seerah. As for Ta'if, the Prophet Sallallahu uh, went to a Ta'if. You know Ta'if is a, is a city near to Mecca. You can, and it's just on the mountain behind Mecca. And the Prophet ﷺ went there uh, and he laid siege to them, but he was not able to break the siege in the first time and he returned back without there being any killing. Then in the month of Dhul Qa'dah, the Prophet ﷺ made, um, made Umrah from Al-Ji'rah, from Al and I can never pronounce this word as many times as I've said it, and I spent this morning saying it, and I still can't say it properly. Al-Ji'rana, which is a, an area between Mecca and Ta'if, nearer to Mecca. And the Prophet ﷺ made Umrah, from there, he stayed in Al-Ji'rana for around about 10 nights and then he made Umrah from there and when the Prophet ﷺ finished his Umrah, what did he do? At this point, the Ansar, they were worried. They felt that the Prophet ﷺ is going to stay in Mecca because he's from Mecca and now he's got his country back. And the Prophet ﷺ made it clear that he was going to go back and live in Medina, that Medina was his city and that since he had made hijrah he was not going to come back to he was not going to come back to Mecca rather he was going to stay in Medina and so he sallallahu set off to Medina wa bintuhu zainab matat thumma 
Then the poet goes on to talk about the death of the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ, Zainab. And then after a number of months was the death of the Prophet ﷺ's son, Ibrahim. And with regard to Ibrahim, it was said yani, uh, about it when the Prophet ﷺ said that the sun and the moon do not eclipse are two of the signs of Allah. They do not clip, eclipse for the birth or the death of anyone. Uh, as they, the, yani, the rumor spread that they had eclipsed for the death of Ibrahim. Ibrahim died at a roundabout, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yani, he was quite... Uh, relatively old in comparison and maybe two years or something like that see if the author mentions it here وَوَهَبَتْ نَوْبَتَهَا لِعَائِشَةِ then the poet goes on to talk about the that Aisha radiallahu anha that uh, Sauda radiallahu anha she became old and as she became older she did not have a desire for intimacy and she was worried that the Prophet might divorce her because she no longer had that, uh, you know, she no longer had that kind of desire and that kind of uh, any relationship with him. And she was worried that the Prophet ﷺ might uh, divorce her, radiallahu anha. And so she gave her day to Aisha. Uh, and Allah Azza wa Jal revealed, فَلَا جُنَاهَا عَلَيْهِمَا أَنْ يُصْلِحَا بَيْنَهُمَا صُلْحَا وَالصُلْحُ خَيْرٌ that if a woman fears from her husband that he might uh, he might not treat her in the best way or he may turn away from her then there is no harm on them to make an agreement in other words to live separately or an agreement that you know the other wife can take her turn and making peace between people is something good there is no evidence that the Prophet ﷺ would have divorced Sauda, and he didn't intend to divorce Sauda, but she feared. She said, or it was said about her, Khashiyat, yani, uh, Ibn Abbas said, Khashiyat Saudatu, an yutalliqahan Nabiyu sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, faqalat, la tutalliqini wa amsiki, waja'al yawmi li Aisha, fafa'al. She said, don't divorce me, keep me as your wife, and give my day to Aisha and Allah revealed that this is permissible. Then the poet goes on to talk about the time that the mimbar was made. The mimbar was made in the eighth year after the hijrah. Uh, and it is said that there was a woman, she came to the Prophet. She said, I have a son who is a carpenter. 
So why don't you allow me to make a mimbar that you can climb upon and you can speak upon so the people can hear you? And he, he said, if you wish to do so, you can do so. So her son made a mimbar for the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophet ﷺ previously had used to lean, lean on a tree. He used to lean on a tree. And it's mentioned that when he went to the mimbar and started to use the mimbar instead, that the tree began to cry because of the dhikr that it missed. And the Prophet ﷺ went to the tree and placed his hand on it and calmed the tree until it stopped crying because of the dhikr that had been, and it used to be that the Prophet ﷺ used to rest on it and, and teach the people Islam, and then he moved to the mimbar. And in that year, Attab, Attab ibn Asid became Muslim on the day of Al-Fatih, and the Prophet ﷺ put him in charge of Makkah when he left. And Attab at that age was less than 20 years old, or around 20 years old, at the age that he was, he was made in charge of Makkah. And he made Hajj in this year. And he, the first Hajj was the Hajj of Attab ibn Asid. He was the first person to make, from among the Muslims, to make the Hajj. Uh, he made Hajj with the people who remained in, in Makkah. In this year, in the eighth year after the Hijrah. With some of the leaders of the Muslims. But it was not that all of the people of Makkah went out. But only Attab and some of the leaders of the Muslims. And at that point there were still mushrikeen in Makkah. And people would still make tawaf uh, yani unclothed. And you know there was still a lot of like khurafat and evil you know in that sense. That was just being you know the Prophet had taken the idols and whatever. But Quraysh was still upon their, you know, the way of their hajj that they used to do before. And it was not until, Attab of course did hajj the way that he was supposed to, but the Prophet it was not until the ninth uh, year after the hijrah uh, that Ali ibn Abi Talib and the poet is going to talk about it, made the statement that after this there is, no, there is no mushrik which is allowed to make hajj and there is no mushrik which is allowed to go around the Kaaba unclothed. And in this year, the Prophet ﷺ fought against uh, against uh, Rome, and there was the the, the battle of, uh, and he had the battle of uh, Tabuk, which I think the author is going to mention, inshallah ta'ala. وَحَجَّ بِالنَّاسِ أَبُو بَكْرٍ وَثَمْ تَلَى بَرَاءَةً عَلِيٌّ وَحَتَمْ أن لا يحج مشرك بعد ولا يطوف عار ذا بأمر فعلا. Then in the ninth year after the Hijrah, the Prophet وسلم, sent Abu Bakr to lead the people in Hajj and Ali ibn Abi Talib رضي الله عنهما and Ali رضي الله عنه recited to the mushrikeen that Allah and His Messenger have no nothing, yani, are free, have nothing to do with anything now that is left between them and the mushrikeen. Now there is no more contract between them and the mushrikeen. And Ali radiallahu anhu called out that there is no hajj for any mushrik after today, nor is it allowed for anyone to make tawaf of the Kaaba unclothed.
and Ali radiallahu an made this announcement in Mina on Yawm al-Nahr, Yawm al-Hajj al-Akbar, the, the, the day of, yani the great day of Hajj, on the day of Eid in Mina, Ali radiallahu an made the announcement that Allah and his messenger have nothing left to do with the mushrikeen. Yani there is no more agreement between us, there is no more contract between us, uh, yani, and that there is no more Hajj for them the following year, and that there is no more Tawaf for them. وَجَاءَتِ الْوُفُودُ فِيهَا تَتْرَى هَذَا وَمِنْ نِسَاهُهُ هَذَا وَمِنْ نِسَاهُ آلَ شَهْرَى Two events the poet talks about now. The first one are the Wufud. And this year, the ninth year of the Hijrah, was called Am Al-Wufud, the year of the delegations. A Wafd is a delegation. And a group of people like, uh, you know, from other cities or other towns who come as a group and they send, they don't send everyone in the town, they choose their leaders and their nobles, you know, their diplomats, their, you know, the people who have a position, the, the people of high society, and they choose a group of them and they send them to the Prophet ﷺ to pledge their allegiance. And then the Prophet ﷺ teaches them and they go back to their people to teach their people. And this is a waft, yani a delegation. And this is known as Amal Wafud because in this year, one after the other, after the other, delegation after delegation in the Arabian Peninsula came to pledge their allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ to learn Islam and to go back to their people. And also in this year, the Prophet ﷺ, uh, made an oath that he would not go to his wives for a month. after uh, there was a request or there was uh, a demand made for yani, an increase in, in the worldly life and the Prophet ﷺ swore that he would not he would, he would distance himself for his, from his wives for one month and after 29 days he came down and Aisha radiallahu anha said to him I thought you said that you had promised you were going to stay away for a month and it's only 29 days he said, O Aisha, inna shahar yakunu tis'aten wa ishirina yawma. There are some months that are 29 days. And uh, any, it's well known that they chose, yani, they chose the hayat al-akhirah, they chose the akhirah over the dunya, radiallahu anhunna ajma'in. Thumma al-najashiyya then al-Najashi rahimahullah ta'ala passed away and the Prophet ﷺ prayed the Salat al-Ghaib and the correct opinion and in my, well, at least my opinion regarding Salat al-Ghaib the funeral prayer for the absent one is that it is only for the one that has no funeral prayer as for the one who the Muslims have prayed over them, there is no funeral prayer for them. And as they do in some places that when someone famous dies, every masjid in the country prays the Salat al-Ghaib for them. Well, this is, in my opinion, is not sahih. And it's not correct. The evidence for al-Najashi is that al-Najashi did not have in his country because nobody remained. Remember, all the Muslims have made hijrah to Medina. 
Nobody remained upon the religion of Islam in that area except the Najashi and perhaps you know, a handful, what we know of, of the people of that country. And so it is, what's apparent is that Najashi did not have an Islamic funeral prayer. Uh, and Allah knows best. And there's ikhtilaf in this among the ulama. Some of the ulama allow salat al-ghaib uh, unrestricted. Yani whenever you want, you can make salat upon the person who is absent. But that does ask the question, why did the Prophet ﷺ not pray Salat al-Ghaib for anyone else? And how many people died in battles in, you know, Ja'far and, you know, Abdullah ibn Ruaha and all these people who died in these battles far away from the Muslim lands? And the Prophet ﷺ never prayed a Salat al-Ghaib. He never prayed the funeral prayer remotely except for al-Najashi. And Allah knows best. And in the last year, which is the 10th year after the Hijrah, was the death of uh, Ibrahim. We said the birth of Ibrahim was in the 8th, after Ibrahim was born in the 8th year after the Hijrah, after the death of Zainab, radiallahu anha. And then he died in the 10th year after the Hijrah. So he was, as I said, two years old, approximately two years old. And the Islam of Jarir ibn Abdullah al-Bajali radiallahu ta'ala anhu wa'ardah. And then the Prophet ﷺ sent him to Dhil Khalasah or Dhil Khalisah. Who, which were a, the Prophet ﷺ said the hour will not come until the buttocks of the women of Daus go around the Khalisah yani until the people of Yemen return back to worshipping idols uh, and the first time that the Khalisah was destroyed was in the time of the Prophet ﷺ and the Prophet ﷺ had sent uh, Jarir ibn Abdullah al-Bajali to destroy the idol of the Khalisah or the Khalasah and the people went back to worshipping it at a later date. In fact, relatively recently, not, not necessarily in our time, but in the last any, perhaps couple of hundred years, something like that, uh, it was reported also that the people in that area went back to this, you know, these kind of acts of worship and then it was cut off from them uh, by another group of people. Then he goes on to talk about Hajjatul Wida' and we don't have enough time to talk about Hajjatul Wida' in, in full but it's enough to say the Prophet ﷺ made Hajj and with him a hundred thousand of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and from those who narrate the Hajj is Jabir ibn Abdullah in Sahih Muslim and this is the most comprehensive narration of the Hajj Jabir literally stood by the camel of the Prophet ﷺ, the whole Hajj and he narrates the Hajj from the beginning all the way to the end. The Prophet ﷺ taught the people how to make the Hajj and on that day as the poet said as the poet said that the al-waqfah any the standing on uh, Arafat was on the day of Jumu'ah 
And the Prophet ﷺ was able to make the Hajj and to teach the people the, the events of the Hajj. And this is something you absolutely must read about in this era. And probably one of the best ways is to go to Sahih Muslim and to read the Hadith, maybe along with an explanation of Jabir ibn Abdullah, the, the long Hadith which deals with the Hajj of the Prophet ﷺ, in which he says, فَأَهَلَّ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ The Prophet ﷺ began to call out the words of Tawheed, لَبَّيْكَ اللَّهُمَّ لَبَّيْكَ And then he narrates the Hadith to the end. Uh, and the Hadith also has a virtue in it relating to any Ahlul Bayt. So when you read the Hadith in Sahih Muslim, you should also be look at the narrators of the Hadith, inshallah. Uh, there is a any fa'idah in that any Hadith. Umar ibn al-Khattab narrated in Bukhari and Muslim that a man from the Jews said to him, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, this is in the time of Umar, an ayah in your book that you read it. If it came down to the Jews, we would have taken it as a day of Eid. The Prophet said, which ayah? Or the, Umar said, which ayah? Radiallahu anhu. The Jewish person said, "Al-yawma akmaltu lakum dinakum wa atmamtu alaykum ni'mati wa raditu lakum al-Islam dina." Today I have completed your religion for you and completed my favor upon you and chosen for you Islam as your religion. Umar said, "I knew which day that was, and I knew the place which this ayah was sent down. It was sent down upon the Prophet ﷺ while he was standing on." the plains of Arafah on the day of Jumu'ah. And it was not the last ayah to be revealed in the Qur'an. The last ayah to be revealed, or the last passage of ayat to be revealed in the Qur'an is the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, وَاتَّقُوا يَوْمًا تُرْجَعُونَ فِيهِ إِلَى اللَّهِ In Surah Al-Baqarah, at the end of Surah Al-Baqarah, the end of the third page before the end, وَاتَّقُوا يَوْمًا تُرْجَعُونَ فِيهِ إِلَى اللَّهِ And the poet talks about this when he says, وَأُنزِلَتْ فِي الْيَوْمِ بُشْرَى لَكُمُ الْيَوْمَ أَكْمَلْتُ لَكُمْ دِينَكُمُ He said, and on that day a great glad tidings were sent. Today I have completed your religion for you. وَمَوْتُ رَيْحَانَةَ بَعْدَ عَوْدِهِ وَتِسْعُ عِشْنَ مُدَّةً مِنْ بَعْدِهِ The poet said, and then the death of Rayhana radiallahu anha when after the Prophet returned from Hajj and the correct opinion she was not a wife of the Prophet she was from the the women that were enslaved from Bani Quraidah and she passed away radiallahu anha wa ardaha after Hajjatul Wida' or Hajjatul Wida' As for the remaining nine wives of the Prophet ﷺ, they lived for a time after the Prophet ﷺ, Ibn al-Qayyim ta'ala said in Az-Zad, لا خلاف أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم توفي عن تسع وكان يقسم أو يقسم منهن لثمان there is no disagreement that the Prophet ﷺ died having nine wives still alive. 
of which he used to visit eight of them, yani of which he used to spend the night with eight of them because Sauda had given her night to Aisha. Then we come to the last part of the seerah. And we, we slightly over time, within, inshallah, in five more minutes we'll finish, inshallah. The last part of the seerah. وَيَوْمَ الْإِثْنَيْنِ قَضَى يَقِينَ إِذْ أَكْمَلَ الثَّلَاثَ وَالسِّتِّينَ وَالدَّفْنُ فِي بَيْتِ ابْنَةِ الصِّدِّيقِ فِي مَوْضِعِ الْوَفَاةِ عَنْ تَحْقِيقِ وَمُدَّةُ التَّمْرِيضِ خُمْسًا شَهْرِ وَقِيلَ بَلْ ثُلُثٌ وَخُمْسٌ فَدْرِي وَقِيلَ بَلْ ثُلْثٌ وَخُمْسٌ فَدْرِي And on a Monday, the Prophet ﷺ passed away, having completed 63 years of his life. He was buried in the house of the daughter of As-Siddiq anhuma, in the place that he died exactly. And the time that he was sick was for a fifth of a month, and it said a third and a fifth of a month. The Prophet ﷺ, as we said, the correct uh, or the, the stronger opinion, and Allah knows best, is that the Prophet ﷺ never fully recovered from the poison. He had health problems from the poison. He didn't die from it because Allah revealed it to him. But he consumed enough of it to give him health problems and eventually he passed away from that uh, he became sick. And when he became sick, he said to his wives, Aina ana liyawm, aina ana ghada. Where am I today? Where will I be tomorrow? Meaning that he, he wished to stay with Aisha. But he, sallallahu alayhi wa did not want to say to his wives, out of his good character and manners, that he didn't want to say to his wives that, let me stay with Aisha. Because Aisha was younger, she was able to take care of him. She was the most beloved of his wives to him. And she was very good at taking care of him. She was very good at looking after him when he was sick. So he indicated to them, he said, where am I today? And, and where will I be tomorrow? Indicating to them that when can I go to Aisha? And so they agreed to give up their time, their nights for, for him to, 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 to wait out his sickness in the house of Aisha. It is said that he was sick in the house of Aisha for a fifth of a month, meaning six days. Uh, and, sorry, for not a fifth of a month, for two fifths, I said a fifth of a month, for khumsa shahar, not khumsa shahar, khumsa shahar, two fifths of a month. A fifth of a month being six days, yani meaning 12 days. And it said, Thuluth wa khums, yani meaning a third and a fifth together, which a third of it would be 10 days and a fifth would be six days. So it said it was either 12 days or 16 days. And this is how they do it in poetry. They can't say 12 or 16 because it doesn't rhyme. So they say two fifths or a third and a fifth, which rhymes. So the two fifths would be 10 days, the third and a fifth would be uh, 16 days.
And Ibn Kathir, or Ibn Hajar, sorry, in Fath al-Bari, mentions that it was 13 days uh, and also 10 days. So that's four opinions regarding the length of the sickness. Uh, the poet mentions two-fifths and a fifth and a third, meaning he mentions 12 days and he mentions 16 days. And Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar adds to that and he seems to favor that it was uh, 13 days or 10 days. And it's also said that it was 12 days or 14 days. But we know that somewhere we're in the region, the lower number is 10, the higher region is 16, and somewhere in that, somewhere in that region uh, was the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's sickness. And we know that Aisha radiallahu anha said, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam died while his head was resting between my chest and my neck, or between my chest and my chin. And he, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had his, had his head on the upper part of Aisha's chest when he passed away and that the Prophet ﷺ from the things that he said towards the, you know, in the very last words that he said, as-salat, as-salat, the prayer, the prayer, and what your right hands possess. And he guard the prayer and be careful of how you treat those people that are under you from the slaves and so on. It's also worth uh, just mentioning, and there are so many events of the seerah that we could mention, but it's very, very worth, or it's very worthwhile to mention the events that happened towards the end of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. Did the Prophet ﷺ choose a Khalifa or not? The answer to that is yes and no. In some ways, no, he didn't. Because he did not say, O Abu Bakr, you are in charge after me. However, he clearly indicated for Abu Bakr to be in charge in two ways, or more than two ways, at least two ways. One of them was that he, he commanded Abu Bakr to lead the people in prayer when he was sick. And it's well known that the one who leads the people in prayer in that situation is the leader of the Muslims. And the second is that a woman came to him and said, O Messenger of Allah, what will I do? Words to the effect of... What will I do if I don't find you here tomorrow? He said, you will find or you will go to Abu Bakr. And there are many, many narrations. And in reality, there is no disagreement among Ahl Sunnah that Abu Bakr is the best of the companions after the Messenger of Allah Wasallam and the most deserving of them for the Khilafah. And you should read more about that because this is a mas'ala you might get asked about and people might bring you some doubts about you know, did, was it the case that the companions betrayed the Prophet ﷺ by putting Abu Bakr in charge as the Shia say, uh, from all of the, delig all of the different levels of the Shia, yani, from the mild of them to the worst of them, yani, effectively have this idea that it should not have been Abu Bakr who was the Khalifa. And in reality, it could not have been anyone else. As for this idea that only some of the Sahaba approved it, then again we go back to this concept of Ahlul Halli, there is a concept that the people, there are power brokers in the society. If they agree, then this is enough. And if those key people in the society agree, you do not need the agreement of everyone in, the, in Islam. We do not elect a leader by the agreement of every individual in the society. Rather, it is a, the leader is elected by the agreement of the power brokers, the people who wield power in the society. 
And it's enough for them to have agreed. As for this thing about the Ansar saying that we'll have an Amir from us and an Amir from you, this was quickly you know, uh, cancelled out and agreed upon for Abu Bakr to be responsible. And Ali ibn Abi Talib was from among the first of the people to give the bay'ah and among the early people to give bay'ah to Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu arda. And you can read much more about that in the books that deal with responding to this doubt that is spread by the Shia that Abu Bakr did not have the right to be the Khalifa after the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The last two lines of the poem, the poet said, He said, and this brings Al-Urjuza. Al-Urjuza, as we asked you in the exam, is a poem with a particular rhyme. It's in Al-Rajz. If you wanted to know what a rajz is, a rajz is the, the camel, when a camel gets sickness in its, its leg, gets infected in its leg, and it walks with a bit of a, you know, like a particular, like funny kind of step, because it's, it's sick, it's got an infection in its leg. So it walks kind of, you know, like up and down, like it kind of hobbles. And this hobbling, the Arabs called it a rajz. Yani the sickness, the sickness, the Arabs called it a rajz. And then the hobbling, they called it Ar-Rajz. And the reason the poem is called Rajz or Urjuza is because it sometimes ends in a, a vowel and sometimes ends in a sukun. Like it goes between a vowel and a sukun and a vowel and a sukun. So for example, وَتَمَّتِ الْأُرْجُوزَةُ الْمِئِيَّةِ That's a sukun. فِي ذِكْرِ حَالِ أَشْرَفِ الْبَرِيَّةِ That's a sukun. صَلَّى عَلَيْهِ اللَّهُ رَبِّي وَعَلَى and then you have, you know, it goes between the vowels and sukun, it changes backwards and forwards. The Urjuzatul Mi'iyah, the hundred line poem, in mentioning the state of the most noble of mankind, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and upon his family and his companions and those who follow them. That is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made easy out of explaining this poem. Alhamdulillah, we finished it. There are a couple of things that I would like to know if you just guys give me maybe a couple of minutes inshallah ta'ala. The first thing uh, is that we have obviously glossed over so much of the seerah. The purpose of the poem, when you understand it, is to give you these events, remind you of them and put them in order for you as they happened. The purpose of the poem is not necessarily to give you the entire story of the seerah. But what I think you should do now is to go back and to read Ar-Rahiq al-Makhtoum, the sealed nectar, or when the moon split, and to link the events together. And what I'm probably going to give you as a, as a home assignment for this term is something in that regard. I'll give you the details later. But it's going to be something like that you take a particular part of Al-Urjuzatul Mi'iyah and I'll probably divide it out among you by your you know, student number, whoever's student number is between 1,000 and 1,500 and we'll do this many lines. And basically what I want you to do is to take Al-Urjuzatul Mi'iyah, the poem, in English and to take a summary of the seerah, you can pick whichever summary of the seerah you want, and to basically summarize the events of each line. You know, to give us like each, you know, so for example, it talks about the battle of Al-Khandaq. 
you're going to go to Ar-Rahik al-Makhtum or to when the moon split or to Mukhtasa Sirat al-Rasul or whatever you want and then you're going to basically summarize in a paragraph what happened in the conduct, like the events, maybe we missed out, we didn't talk about how many people fought or who got killed or any, mention just bullet points from the seerah that you have benefited from that particular event. We'll then produce like a little booklet for everyone so that you have like the notes for the poem. You have the poem and you have the notes for the poem. About between 10 and 15 people read the poem to me and at least one of them read the entire poem all the way through and some read half of the poem. If people still want to read the other half, we're not talking about marks and credits and things like that, but just people want to read the other half or they've memorized it, then those people who read the first half, I don't mind listening to you read the second half when you finished it, maybe after a few weeks or whatever it is. But the homework assignment is not memorization this term. It's going to be to take a part of Al-Urjuzatul Mi'iyah and I'm gonna tell you which part according to your student number I'm going to assign for you a part to do a certain number of lines of poetry and you're going to produce bullet points as or a paragraph summary from one of the books of the seerah for each line of poetry. So it might end up being a couple of pages, three pages, four pages of you know notes and we'll put them all together, the best ones, we'll kind of amalgamate them together and we'll produce like a notebook explanation of Al-Urjuzatul Mi'iyah so you can memorize and benefit from from that ta'ala. There is one thing that I haven't done that I actually wanted to do. And this came from Kalima, from the admin staff, the managerial, the management staff at Kalima. They asked me to give you a revision session whereby we kind of go over the how the exam will be structured. Okay? Um, obviously I'm not gonna give you the answers to the exam, that would be kind of defeat the purpose but to kind of give you an idea. So I'll just, I can't, I, we don't have time to give you the revision session because we, we lost time because it was Tad Talib's uh, event last week. We lost half an hour, 45 minutes, so we couldn't manage to give you the time to do half an hour revision. But what I will tell you is this, a few basic points by way of revision. Focus on learning and understanding the poem. In other words, take the poem in English the English poem, the translation we've put for you online, take the English poem and go through and make sure you understand what each one is. There are some times when I will give you additional information and one or two questions in the exam will relate to additional information. As an example, I might ask you the end, you know the last, last bit we did where we said that how many days was the Prophet I'm sick? The poet mentions 12 and 16. And I mentioned to you that Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar mentioned uh, two other opinions. He mentioned, what was it, 10 and 14, maybe. Anyway, 13, yes, 13. 10 and 13. I might ask you about that, but generally most of what I ask you, like 70%, 80% of what I ask you, is going to be just understanding the poem exactly like the previous exam was. Exactly like the previous exam was. That do you understand what this line means? Can you select what this is referring to? Which one happened first? Which year did this happen in? Those are the kind of questions you're gonna get. Who became Muslim at this time? 
there will be 20, 30% of questions which relate to the explanation. You can get that from the audio which is uploaded. The brothers told me they were behind in uploading the audio, but they hope by today to be finished with the audio so that you can get ready for the exam, uh, insha'Allah ta'ala. And that is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made easy. Wassalatu wassalamu ala bina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik ashadu an la ilaha illa ant astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.